Where does an ambassador go for vacation? You might be pleasantly surprised by the mountain region of southwest Bulgaria. A former U.S. ambassador recommends it as a welcoming and scenic way to explore thousands of years of Balkan history. In every valley and in every corner, there are either amazing archaeological ruins or old towns and villages. But how do we mitigate the impacts of our own travels as the effects of climate change accelerate all around us? A climate scientist helps us get a handle on what we can do to lessen its impacts on the places we love. I think we need to start empowering people to see the way that they can be part of the solution. And hear how the pop music of Germany expressed the aspirations of the German people during and after the Cold War. It ranges from syrupy beer hall tunes to intense electronica. A lot of their songs were about technology, they were about moving forwards, they were about the future. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. How can we turn our good intentions into actions that matter? Coming up, we get advice to help reduce our impacts on climate change. And we'll hear how the popular music of Germany provides us a look at how their well-ordered world has changed with the times. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves with ideas for traveling like a diplomat. A few years ago, while filming in Bulgaria, my crew and I were invited to the U.S. Embassy in Sofia, My evening there with Ambassador Eric Rubin and his staff reminded me of the talent and passion and importance of the dedicated people who make up our foreign service. I remember leaving there that evening inspired, with my head just spinning from what I'd learned. (laughs) And I I just left also thinking that it's not fair. I got to enjoy this fascinating evening and, and not share the conversation. I thought, I've got to have Ambassador Rubin on my radio show to talk travel. And we're going to do that right now. Ambassador Eric Rubin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Can I call you Eric? Absolutely. Great. Hey, I was just wondering, you've, you've done 35 years of service all over the United States. You're, you're in Washington, D.C. now as the president of the American Foreign Service Association, speaking up for the, the needs and issues of 17,000 people in our foreign service. And you've done so much traveling. Uh, for you, this is a travel show on the radio. Is travel for you a career diplomat, a, a kind of busman's holiday, or do you like it? I I love it. I was lucky enough as a kid to travel a lot with my parents all around the world, and I think that's where I got the bug, and I traveled and did exchanges as a student, and it's it's in my blood. You know, yes, it's part of the job, very much so, but uh, I'm lucky to have had a a job for so long that, that I really love. You know, this listing of your posts since 85, what countries have you served in now? Uh, Honduras, Ukraine, Russia, Thailand, and Bulgaria just makes my head spin. And we had a wonderful conversation recently uh, on this show talking about the politics and the value of foreign service and so on. This time, I'd really like to just have some fun reminiscing about your travels. Is that okay? Absolutely. So let's say we had a private jet, uh, you, me, and a couple of loved ones, and the political climate was calm enough to make this a fun vacation. And uh, you had a month to visit your former posts or those countries at least the places that you'd like to return to, where would you take me? Well, I would take you to northern Thailand. I'd take you to Siberia. I would take you to the mountains of Bulgaria. I think that's probably my top three list. Wow. that's <laughs> We could fill a month doing that easy because I'd love to go to each of those places. You mentioned northern Thailand. To me, there's two kinds of travelers when they go to Thailand. There's people who go to Phuket and have hedonism on the beach. And there's people that go to northern Thailand where you find that's the hill tribe country, isn't it, around Chiang Mai? 
It is. It's a fascinating multicultural area, not just the part in Thailand, but the surrounding countries as well. More than 100 different nationalities and ethnic groups, incredible languages, cuisines, art and culture and religion. It's, it's a really vibrant place. And you being a diplomat, you were probably aware of the spillover from troubled other countries that cross the border and drug trade and, and that kind of stuff. What's, what's the latest on the demographic and ethnic challenges of the Hill Tribe country of northern Thailand? Well, there are a lot of refugees from Burma because the civil war in Burma basically has been going on most of the time since Burma's independence in the 1940s. Unfortunately, that's led to literally almost a million, I think, refugees crossing into mm. Thailand. Also, the problems during the Vietnam War in Vietnam and Laos uh, had led to a large number of refugees, including the Hmong, many of whom later emigrated to the U.S. and have become American citizens. So refugee problems have been going on for a very long time. The, the Thais have been very good hosts for the most part, but it's never easy when you've got big refugee camps. I would think a big part of the um, burden of being in the diplomatic corps is helping countries deal with refugee problems. I mean, we're, that's going to be a, a big word in our future, I would imagine, is uh, you know stress that refugees put on different countries. My son has been living in Colombia for years and uh, a lot of refugees from Venezuela. Uh, in the United States, we've got refugees coming in from all corners. And we've got uh, the specter of climate refugees even more, I mean, in, in massive numbers coming up. Refugee problems are going to be with us to stay, I'm afraid. Absolutely. And I, I think we have more uh, refugees and displaced people now than at any time since the end of World War II. And it's millions and millions of people. And we can't do it alone. And no country can do it alone, which is why we have to do this as the international community through the UN, through NGOs, through all the groups mm -hmm. that help refugees. And we, we can't just build a wall and let the rest of the world deal with it. Uh, and it's not a problem that we can wish away. So you'll get the dose of that when you go to northern Thailand. The, the indigenous people up there are just so endearing. Uh, if I remember correctly, the orchid is the national flower of Thailand. And to me, the people are it's just emblematic of the people. Yes. And, and some of the, the art and some of the architecture, which some of which is, is several thousand years old, is, is just amazingly uh. both fascinating and beautiful. Now, Eric, you, you mentioned Siberia is a place you'd go back to. Uh, I thought they just send people there when they want them to disappear or be uh, you know, wiped out of memory or uh, go to prison. Well, I'm afraid the Russian government is still doing that to some extent. It's part of their, their history. But Siberia, in many respects, is the last frontier. It's the biggest, essentially untouched piece of land in the world because Russia is the world's largest country by far. And between the East Coast on the Pacific and Western Russia in Europe, there are not a whole lot of people. Uh, there's a whole lot of trees and animals and natural resources. Mm. And most of it is, is still fairly pristine and stunning. And, you know, from glaciers up uh, in the Arctic down to the tundra and then incredible lakes and mm. mountains in the Urals. It's really a, a stunning region, not easy to travel in, but absolutely fascinating and beautiful. Eric Rubin is helping us travel like a diplomat right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Eric has been a U.S. ambassador to Bulgaria, Honduras, Thailand, Ukraine, and Russia. And until recently, he headed the American Foreign Service Association, which represents the needs of people working in American embassies and consulates around the world. Their website is afsa.org. 
the third stop on your tour that you're going to give us is Bulgaria. And you didn't say the capital city of Sofia. You didn't say the touristic favorite of Plovdiv. You didn't say where the Bulgarians have to go for their beach vacation on the on the Black Sea coast. You said the mountains. When I think the mountains of Bulgaria, I think um, great monasteries that were sort of the way they lock away the precious cultural artifacts of the country that can withstand any political storms. What were you thinking when you talked about the mountains of Bulgaria? Well, I was thinking that that's the least explored part of Bulgaria, and it has the most, I think, surprises. And uh, if you have the the privilege of being able to go there, it's the most unique part of Bulgaria. Uh, Sofia is a beautiful city. Plovdiv, the the old capital, is an absolutely stunning city going back to the Romans. Uh, But I think the ability to, to explore the Bulgarian mountains, where there's really thousands of years of history. The Byzantines came through, the Romans came through, the Ottomans ruled for 500 years, and in every valley and in every corner, there are either amazing archaeological ruins mm-hmm. or old towns and villages. As you mentioned, some of these ancient monasteries are truly uh, architectural gems and have been recognized as such by UNESCO and the world. So, yes. you know, there's that. And then the people you find there are are not on the tourist track. So you find some of the most welcoming and hospitable and authentically interesting people. And it's not to say that people in cities aren't interesting, but uh, they've met a lot of foreign tourists and they're not always that interested. So it's just a really wonderful experience. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ambassador Eric Rubin. He graduated from Yale in 1985 and has been in the Foreign Service ever since, serving in places like Honduras, Moscow during years of the USSR collapse, Ukraine, Thailand, and more. He was the U.S. ambassador in Bulgaria from 2016 to 2019 and president of the American Foreign Service Association. And he joins us today from Washington, D.C. If you want to know more about his work with the American Foreign Service Association, you can go to their website. It is afsa.org. Eric, you've got uh, two daughters, Liana and Rachel. I assume they were raised overseas. How was that? I was just uh, in Athens uh, in the uh, ambassador's garden there, and uh, we had a, I gave a talk, and I got to talk to all of the, the children of their staff, and they were amazingly curious and attentive and just wonderful youngsters that were, the world was their friend. Uh, what was it like for you? You'd have to ask our our daughters who are now adults, but I I think I can say uh, they think it was mostly a a wonderful experience. And um, it is a uniquely enriching opportunity for kids to to travel the world, to live overseas, to not just be tourists, but to actually live in a foreign culture. Obviously, if you're with an embassy family, you're not going to be living in in a village somewhere with no other foreigners. But Still, frequently they go to school with kids from all over the world, frequently learn the local languages, and then get to travel with their families, certainly in the country they're assigned to, but frequently all over. When we were were in Europe, we traveled all over Europe, and it was great. On the other hand, it can be hard to move every few years. Uh, Military kids have the same experience, and that can be dislocating and saying goodbye to friends and making new friends and then navigating a new culture. So they're there are stresses, and there are kids who would say they, they wish they had just stayed in one place their whole lives. But overall, I would say the kids who have the opportunity and do this are enriched by it and uh, carry that with them their whole lives. Eric, you've traveled a lot in 35 years. Uh, we're just about out of time, but I, I wonder if you could sum up, is there any general travel tip that you picked up as a professional traveler 
in all of your years in Central America, Bulgaria, former USSR, Thailand, what is a general philosophy of travel that you think you'd like to share with people who are dreaming about putting together a, a transformational tour, a trip where they really broaden up to the world? I would say push your boundaries, but do it intelligently, which means do your homework. You definitely want to research the place you're going. Uh, depending where you're going, you may need more or less research. If you're going to the beach, you may not need as much. But really, you should learn a little bit or more about where you're going, the, the history, the culture, the, the manners, frankly, because they differ all around the world. And also, you know, some of the recent history, so you're familiar with, with it, it comes up. And then you should, you know, pick your your challenges. You should not be afraid to take new challenges, but you shouldn't do something that you don't think you would do at home. So, yep. you know, people get in trouble if, if they, they do things they would, would never do at home. But get out there. Don't be afraid to explore. And mm -hmm. I think you'll find most people around the world are really welcoming of American travelers. It's so important when the opportunity presents itself, say yes, but also don't get carried away with your enthusiasm and the euphoria of being in an exciting new spot uh, where you forget to use just some common sense. And uh, I think you should be okay. Ambassador Eric Rubin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. What kind of difference can we as individuals really make when the big polluters fight to avoid doing their part? A climate scientist takes us beyond the guilt and into what we can do to make a difference for the world we live in and the places we love. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. As a climate scientist, Dr. Heidi Roop believes that when it comes to global warming, every action matters, be it individual, local, or government. While the scale of the climate crisis can feel overwhelming, she also wants us to have hope, something often overlooked in climate change conversations. And that's what led her to research her new book, The Climate Action Handbook, a visual guide to 100 climate solutions for everyone. She joins us now from St. Paul, Minnesota, where she directs the University of Minnesota Climate Adaptation Partnership. Heidi, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, a lot of us are smart people, but we don't understand the science of it. In a very simple nutshell, can you give us a review on that? The problem, the cause, the solution. The problem simply is us. The combustion, the creation of what we call greenhouse gases that when put in the atmosphere, trap heat, causes the planet to warm and warm outside of the range of natural climate variability that in turn causes the climate system to operate in a different way. It amplifies rain events, droughts, flood events that stem from those rain events. And so this is simply a physics challenge. We know clearly the connection between greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the temperature of the planet, our climate system, and thus the impacts that we experience. And unfortunately, the fingerprints of climate change are everywhere. And they're here now and not very far from a place near you or a place you love. Hmm. You have a sentence in your book, once we emit, we commit. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this comes back to physics again, <laughs> those pesky physics. <laughs> um, so greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide are long lived in our atmosphere. So once we create them through things like producing energy or um, insert the many of things that we all do every day that rely on fossil fuels. So what might simply be a short dash uh, down the street or a quick flight over to Europe actually produces 
heat-trapping gases that stay in the atmosphere, in some cases, well over a thousand years. Um, there are other gases like methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas, meaning it traps more heat per molecule than something like carbon dioxide. It's in the atmosphere for a lot less time. So we're worried about those short-lived greenhouse gases as well as the long-lived greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, which is why you hear about technologies that want to actively remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The reason we want to do that is because once we emit it, we're committed unless we actively find a way to remove it, physically remove it from the atmosphere. So there's something I got out of your book that kind of shows we have a certain track we're on and inertia. And if we do something now, the result is it's like redirecting a huge ship. You know, you can turn the steering wheel, but it doesn't redirect it right away. It's People don't understand the long-term impact of today's actions. That's absolutely right. And that's one of the uh, difficult opportunities of the work that I get to focus on. You know, I lead an organization called the Climate Adaptation Partnership. Adaptation is just basically a fancy word for preparing for those impacts of climate change that we know, quite frankly, we've already set in motion. Adaptation I, just depresses me. Yes, it's also an opportunity. So similar to that, you know, we, we refer a lot and folks may be familiar hearing things like one and a half degrees Celsius and we have a decade left. Um, this is all uh, language that's derived from the science of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is essentially our global authority. I think what a lot of people don't realize they point not only to the rapid reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, the next decade is going to be critical for society to actually prepare for those changes. We both mm -hmm. have to prevent the problem from getting worse by reducing mm -hmm. emissions, while we also seek to prepare for those changes that we know we've set in motion. You know, when I was little, we had shop and we had home ec in middle school. It seems like we need a new class that every student has to take, and it would be climate science, just so they can understand what's going to change their and their children and their grandchildren's world. I might offer a title suggestion for that course that I do think should be a common course, which is climate science and solutions. Nice. I think we need to start empowering people to see the way that they can be part of the solution and not just understand and live through, quite frankly, the real monumental challenge before us. Hmm. I think adaptation does that. Adaptation is the antidote in a lot of ways because it enables us to think about what is the future we want to create and how do we get there. Man, that's, that's the philosophy. Of, it comes through so clearly in your book. We're considering the global climate change crisis right now and what, what we can each do to help prevent it here on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Dr. Heidi Roop. Her book is The Climate Action Handbook. Guide to 100 Climate Solutions for Everyone. Dr. Roop is an assistant professor of climate science and the director of the Climate Adaptation Partnership at the University of Minnesota. Her website is HeidiRoop.com. Heidi, this is a travel show, and let's talk about the elephant in the room right now, travel and climate change. I, I, I'm all over traveling as a traveling in a thoughtful way that, that helps me be a citizen of the planet when I get home but it contributes to climate change. So what I'm trying to wrestle with is traveling in a way that's carbon neutral, mitigation. It seems to me mitigation is a hopeful word. You can create as much good as you create bad. It's nothing heroic. It's just baseline, but it's ethical to pay your carbon cost. Is it possible to pay our carbon costs and be more ethical travelers? What are your thoughts? 
it's complicated. And I think we're a ways away from it being a completely balanced um, carbon expended by way of your travel and then offsetting that through some mechanism. I think increasingly there are calls to improve the way in which we do that accounting and that we actually verify that, say, mm -hmm. the carbon offset we're purchasing or investing in translates into real one-for-one -one emissions reductions. And so that is um, fraught. I think, unfortunately, the burden of responsibility to understand what an offset might purchase really still falls to the individual, um, yeah. which is a shame. Yeah, I do think there are ways to do it. I think the eyes wide open approach is really important. And I think we need to be really honest. I think this is something that I am personally struggling with as someone who has demands on their career to travel, demands personally to travel, um, both out of a desire, but also I have a brother who lives in Tunisia. And travel was a big aspect of what inspired me to become a scientist. I never wanted to be a scientist and opportunities to see parts of the world that are changing rapidly, including the high Arctic, transformed my life. So I have to square these things as well. The, the problem that the hurdle I see is how to know what is effective mitigation. I wish there was a government seal of like what we used to have the, the good housekeeping seal or something like that. If anybody comes along and says, if you plant six trees, you can fly to Europe. You know, I think that's a little too easy. But how are we going to know? If you talk to people who make money selling carbon offsets, you're not going to get an unbiased opinion. Is there no government organization that sees the value of letting us consume in the area of mitigation smartly? Not quite yet. And right, I think, you know, the adage that we often use in other aspects of our life, like if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. That's also true in the landscape of emissions reduction, carbon offsets, and broadly, I think climate solutions. Greenwashing is a very real thing um, because there is corporate gain that stems from um, convincing right. an increasingly broad base of consumers who want to be sustainable, who want to be thoughtful and intentional with where they place their dollars and the decisions they make. So I think, yes, there are ways to go about it, but I will say that we know we need to reduce emissions. And some of that also comes down to thinking about, is there one less trip a year you might take? Can you combine travel? Mm -hmm. um, often the biggest source of emissions from an individual, particularly in the United States, stems from travel, air travel in particular. And so being really intentional and also honest with ourselves, right? There are mm -hmm. impacts that stem from our travel and not just the flying piece, right? So to your point and something that um, you represent so well, which is this eyes wide open travel. And when you do come back from that trip, that's broadened your horizon and changed your perspective. Do that something. climate <laughs> is part of that yeah. cadence of action and engagement. It doesn't go away when you pull into the gate. And, you know, you can educate yourself. That's what your book is all about, the Climate Action Handbook. And there you've got um, a little section on how uh, flying business class or first class uh, takes more carbon than flying economy. So for six hours, you've got that comfort, but you've doubled your contribution to the problem. As a consumer, you need to do that knowing the cost. I wish we had a little light that went off. Every time we did something, they would say, you know, you're, you're driving, but you could take the train. That cost this. The, the fun thing about your book is it offers a hundred varied and doable solutions that in themselves, they don't seem to make that much difference. But as you point out, collectively, it has to be um, 
climate change needs a death by, what do you call it, a, a thousand little pinpricks. Absolutely. Every single one of us can be that meaningful pinprick, right? And if we all pretend it's someone else's problem to solve, then of course, we're not going to be making any meaningful steps forward. Um, when we know that that's not just one foot in front of the other, it's actually one foot in front of the other as fast as we can possibly go. And the book for me was really an attempt to educate myself. Mm -hmm. um, even though I study climate change, and I like to think I'm part of the solution. Every single talk, someone would ask, but Heidi, what can I do? How mm -hmm. can I help? I mm -hmm. want to be part of the solution. Does anything I do matter? And I felt like I needed to learn and actually reframe that conversation. And so not just talk about electric vehicles or flying less, but the multitude of ways that opportunities for solutions show up every day around us from the breakfast table to our commute to work and what conversations we potentially dare to have. Dr. Heidi Roops, our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She's a climate scientist and researcher who's compiled 100 actionable ideas in her book, The Climate Action Handbook. It's an illustrated guide to starting and sustaining our own climate action journeys in how we drive, work, travel, eat, shop, stay healthy, and take care of our homes and communities. We have links to her work with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. A big part of your book, Heidi, is hope. What, what is the hope on the technology front? I mean, some of us just close our eyes and imagine a big vacuum cleaner in the sky that would swoop it all up and then, you know, send it to the moon. I don't know. I, I just talked to somebody in Stockholm who's all excited about making flying Teslas. You know, they're, they're getting an electronic powered airplane. Apparently it's in the works. What are you excited about in the area of tech improvements to fight this? I... I don't know that that really spins my wheels, Rick, if I'm being honest, right. technology yeah. and climate. I think that there is absolutely a place for it and, quite frankly, absolutely a necessity. If we are going to achieve any of our global targets for trying to prevent um, the worst consequences of climate change on society, we have to deploy technology. But that technology is what I like to call the last mile. Mm. It's the technology that's really going to push us that last mile to help us achieve these ambitious targets. But we also need to, quite frankly, pick the low-hanging fruit. We yep. know where greenhouse gases come from. We know the energy-intensive sectors. And we often know what solutions we need to deploy in those sectors. So it's a yes and. But we can't wait for it to save us. Now, you said in your book... Just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of industrial emissions. That sounds very tangible and finite. 100 companies are responsible for three-quarters of the industrial emissions. What percent of the problem is industrial emissions? Pretty significant percent. So it depends on which industry. Of course, we don't make it simple when we sort of start to slice and dice the emissions pie. You know, things like cement and concrete fall in a slightly different sector of industrial emissions. Um, but a lot of those hundred companies um, are unsurprisingly fossil fuel companies. And of course, it takes time to transition these large companies away from fossil fuels. We're mm -hmm. in the process of doing that. But it doesn't come without resistance, right? The status quo and something that makes money is, of course, sometimes the easiest path. Um, mm -hmm. And we are often not necessarily accounting for the real costs that stem from the combustion of fossil fuels, whether those are lives, how do we calculate the value of someone's health and well-being, or quite frankly, their life. We know there are millions of premature deaths 
annually that are attributed to the combustion of fossil fuels. Um, so while we know the sources, there's still resistance. And this is, again, where I think we really need individuals because we are also part of those systems and where we can. Um, those of us who have agency to make different decisions can help pave the way for more of us to opt in to alternatives. And how important is government action? I mean, politics. Uh, it, it, this is so fundamental, but it's got to take government leadership, doesn't it? I mean, we're not going to do it without the government on board. It take. It takes government leadership and it takes multiple forms of leadership, I think, in the government. It takes all of our political systems. One of the things that I like to talk about that I learned in the book, I think I inherently knew it, but I had never really placed numbers on it. And this is that 0.1% of our elected leaders work at the federal level. Yeah, that's one out of a thousand. So 96.3% in turn work in our local communities. But more often than not, we're talking about that 0.1%. It's a powerful 0.1%. They distribute money downstream to all those local elected leaders. But we live in a political ecosystem. Those local leaders also make decisions about where money goes or how our electric utilities can be regulated. That can often happen at the state level. Um, our school boards help determine what gets taught, what school meals are provided, whether idling is allowed outside of a school door. So um, there are all sorts of decisions that climate intersects with. I like to use an example in Minnesota. Where we love our winters. We're very proud of our hardiness. But this last winter, I heard so much about potholes. We have some infrastructure challenges that are being made worse by climate change. So for me, a pothole in the road is an opportunity for a climate conversation because my local elected leaders are driving over those same potholes, damaging their vehicles too. So there's a common source of frustration. And if we can find those entry points to say, you know what, we could mm -hmm. start solving for, you might care about roads that function, right? In order to have a road that functions, we now have to think about climate change and design that road with climate change in mind. You'd be surprised to know that that's not happening on a regular basis in most of our communities mm. around the country. And that sounds like the takeaway you'd like when people get your book, The Climate Action Handbook. Find something that excites you, lean into your strengths and passions, and then find something else. Um, we can't fall prey to single action bias, right? It's not enough to just offset your carbon. There's another meaningful way for you to be part of the climate solution, whether that's the wine you drink at night or the conversations you have with families or friends. Climate solutions surround us. You know, Dr. Roop, I think whatever we're passionate about, you could think of 100 people, they all got 100 different things they're passionate about. All those things we are passionate about will be impacted down the road by our inaction today. Absolutely. And my guess is that all of those things you're passionate about, there's an opportunity to be part of the climate solution there, too. There you go. Thank you so much for your work. And uh, you've inspired me and you've inspired countless people with your book, The Climate Action Handbook. Thanks, Dr. Roop. Thank you. Would you hew me to the hardwood cutter? Would you lay me low beneath your feet? Listen to my sad mutter. Hear my heart. Heidi Roop teaches climate science at the University of Minnesota, where she heads their Climate Adaptation Partnership. She posts more ideas from her Climate Action Handbook on her website, HeidiRoop.com. That's spelled R-O-O-P. 
Hear how to give the New Year a grand welcome with the traditions and superstitions they observe in Edinburgh, Scotland. It's in an extra of this week's show. You can hear that from our website at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, we'll hear how a half-century of German pop and rock music amplifies how their society has changed. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Last summer, I shared a bench with a view of the harbor in Stockholm for a very difficult conversation. My friend Maisie Hitchcock confided that she was losing her battle against a rare form of ovarian cancer. She also wanted to let me know how grateful she was to have had meaningful work as a tour guide based in the city she loved, Berlin. I reminded Maisie that the joy with which she embraced and shared the world would be a lasting memory for me and for everyone who knew her for the rest of our lives. As a tribute, let's go into the Travel with Rick Steves archives for an interview we recorded with Maisie nearly seven years ago. She was eager to share what she'd noticed about how changes in German society before and after the Cold War are reflected in Germany's own brand of pop and rock music. Macy, how did Germany's pop culture scene differ from the one that American and British artists were setting the scene for back in the 1950s and 60s? Well, I think that actually Germany kind of took its own path post-World War II uh, in terms of pop. Uh, it was kind of forced to, in a way, because well, no one was really interested in what was going on in Germany, I imagine, musically after the war. And I think they really wanted to follow their own path. And you had in the beginning, you had something which is now kind of looked down on. It sells a lot, but it's not particularly cool. Schlager. No, uh, and how do you define Schlager? And I define Schlager as I say it's kind of I'd say schmaltzy. It's a German word schmaltz, which is for like lard. So or, the word schmaltz yeah. is actually for a German word for lard. It is, yeah. So an American says schmaltzy, they are saying a German word. Yeah, they are indeed. And I think schmaltzy sums up Schlager completely. It embodies a Schlager. I'd say it's a bit like new country music. It's the equivalent in the US. Okay. This kind of country light. I think there's a celebration of schmaltziness yes, in, in Schlager. Definitely. And the lyrics are simple. They're always romantic. They're optimistic. Often Schlager singers might be a bit older. And, and it sounds a little better when you've had a couple beers. It definitely does. And what you'll do is if you listen to Schlager music and you'll see it on the TV channels that broadcast, exclusively broadcast Schlager. Isn't there a band in uh, Castleruth, a yeah. Tyrolean band, that's the uh, the Castleruther or something like that? And it's just, it's international. They're a phenom. Yeah. Es gibt so and it's all very simple, very happy, very yeah. light, umpa schlager. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so but you're talking about a more serious cultural edge. Yes. And what, what is that? And there are different genres that the Germans have pioneered post-war. Um, one of them, kind of one that's had a very long-lasting impact, it's a little bit more obscure, but it's, you know, influenced contemporary music, especially independent music across Europe and the world. And that's Krautrock. <laughs> Doesn't sound great. Krautrock. So the krautrock, in, insulting yeah. way to refer to a German is a kraut. Yeah. So this is krautrock. Yes. And, and kraut means people who eat sauerkraut a lot, right? Basically, Okay, so yeah. and in Germany, you can actually call a genre krautrock. Yes. It's kind of electronic, or how would it's you ele- It's it? kind of electronic. It basically came, emerged from the uh, 60s kind of counterculture movement. 68 was the birth of krautrock. I think that year was when lots of young kind of dropouts, lots of students were kind of getting together forming communes, rejecting kind of their parents, the so generation. this is the Woodstock times in America? Absolutely, yeah. And it's the time you've got the student protests across Europe, so they're very much fired on by that. It's protest, it's political, it's, but it's electronic. It's electronic because they wanted their own kind of style of music. They didn't want to just copy the Americans. The idea was the Americans were kind of colonising electronic West in the sense of... Very avant-garde, very okay, avant-garde. avant-garde. It, it, yeah. Hey, you- 
and they combine elements of kind of psychedelic rock. So there was an influence from rock and roll. And that's with that. rock. And that's cult rock, yeah. Okay, and then what happened after that? And then after that, you have much later on, you have uh, things like the Neue Deutsche Welle movement, which was the Germans' take on New Wave, which is kind of more poppy. So Neue Welle, is that New Wave? New Wave, yeah. Okay, the New so, German Wave. So Neue Deutsche Welle, the New German Wave. Yes. So yeah. we have New Wave, our punk. This is German punk. Exactly, yeah. And it's kind of it was kind of more silly, believe it or not. Because our punk is sort of <laughs> angry. Yeah. And it was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, but in Germany, it was actually light and fun. Yes, it really? was. It was really self-effacing. Everyone dressing up in silly costumes. There was a band called Der Plan from Dusseldorf who used to wear kind of ridiculous alien outfits and talk about picking pieces of pizza out of the dustbin. That kind of stuff. So as we're talking you know. about this, uh, Macy, if you can relate to American groups that we might be yes. able to see it, like would there be an American equivalent of a light and happy punk rocker? I would even say possibly Devo. Mm-hmm. They're quite famous. I'd say right. Devo is the equivalent, was the That's American equivalent. That's kind of what my guess yep. would be. It's a tribute to our guest Maisie Hitchcock right now as we remember her enthusiasm for her adopted home in Berlin and her passion for the city's vibrant art scene and sense of history. In this interview from the Travel with Rick Steves archives, Maisie's explaining how you can understand changes to Germany's culture through its pop and rock music. When we're going through all of this, we all know how American music has reflected our culture as it's gone through difficult stages and as it's grown. How does the German story differ from the, the American story? I mean, you've got Germany being basically reborn after World War II, you know, in, in a different way to the rest of the Europe. It was the defeated country, uh, and it had a lot to gain. It needed to gain a lot. And I feel like a band like uh, there were bands that kind of embraced the new uh, reborn Germany because Germany emerged very, very quickly from the ashes of World War II thanks to the Marshall Plan, well, West Germany, let's say. So America was injecting all yes. sorts of funds to build up its former enemy and make it a, a strong, stable, capitalist, free society. But the parents of a lot of the um, market for pop music were were former Nazis. Yes, absolutely. And the young people were basically trying to kind of get away from that. And you have the kind of the violent manifestation of that in the Bader-Meinhof group. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, I mentioned Krautrock before. And one group that came out of the Krautrock movement were Kraftwerk, which literally means a kind of factory. Kraftwerk. Now, I think the one American, the song that might have crossed the Atlantic was uh, Bon, 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 Autobahn. Autobahn, yes. And that is, for me, that was really Was it fun, is, fun, fun, Autobahn? That was actually mis- it's misunderstood. That lyric is actually, they're saying, wir fahren auf der Autobahn, which means we drive on the Autobahn. But when Americans heard it and British people heard it, they thought, oh, they're saying the fun, fun, fun of the Autobahn. And when Kraftwerk translated their lyrics, they translated it into the fun, fun, fun oh, so of the Autobahn. Kraftwerk did an English-language version. Yes, they did, yeah. So, and yeah. I, I just heard Bon, 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 Autobahn, <laughs> but it was... The original German was... Fahren, fahren, fahren. We drive, drive, drive on the Autobahn. What's the message of that song? I think the message is the idea is, you know, although I have to say the Autobahn was the product of the Third Reich. Uh, Hitler, you know, Hitler built the, uh, the, the super yes. freeways of Germany to get their tanks from the yep. Russian front to the French front in a hurry. Exactly. But, it, you know, it's a legacy, one of the few positive legacies of the Third Reich. And basically, I think what it represents is it's Germany moving forwards, it's emerging from the ashes of World War II, ah. and it's rebuilding itself, and it was becoming hugely a powerful economic kind of powerhouse, which was unexpected. You know, it really rapidly recovered from World War II thanks to this money. That is interesting. It probably was uh, sort of shocking to the Germans how they had basically destroyed Europe, and suddenly they completely lost, they're completely bombed out, 
They get a complete, like a blood transfusion with new money and new mark, all funded by their former enemies, the Americans, and suddenly Germany is the powerhouse in Europe. They are importing Turks to be their guest arbiters. There's all sorts of economic power on the horizon. And take it up to today, and, and Germany really is the leading power in the European Union. The euro is kind of like the Deutschmark in disguise. That's what's so incredible about it, is that you have this Wirtschaftswunder, this economic miracle. It was a miracle, really, that happened. And I think Kraftwerk encapsulated that. Whether it was conscious or not, I don't know. But a lot of their songs were about technology. They were about moving forwards. They were about the future. Uh, and they're very so positive and really forward-looking. Clear. We're making a yeah. clean break with the past. Yeah. Our parents, yeah. God bless them, they're done. That's yeah. no more of that. Well, now we look ahead. Yeah. And they even built their own instruments, and they were seen as very, very groundbreaking. What instruments would those have been? Synthesizers. They originally incorporated things like they used things like flutes with synthesizers, electronic synthesizers. And in the end, they just used to build everything themselves. They had their own big studio in Düsseldorf, and they were famous for kind of creating. These now the reality here: you got superpower Western Germany, the model of a new capitalist society, free, pluralistic, and you got Eastern Germany, the DDR, that until 1990 was living under a communist dictatorship that worked very hard to control the pop scene. What was the music and pop culture scene on the other side of the Berlin Wall like in the 1980s? Well, it was a very different story because the regime, um, especially, actually, I'd say earlier on, the regime was very opposed to any kind of American, any kind of rock and roll, because they saw it as corrupting East German youth, taking them away from socialism. By the 1980s, they'd mellowed a bit. But before that, you had them clamping down very heavily on dissident singers. There was a very famous singer called Wolf Biermann, who was basically, I'd say, the East German equivalent of Woody Guthrie or Bob Dylan. He was out there doing his protest songs. He was actually in East German protesting against the communist system, yes. and he got away with it? Well, no, he didn't, actually. What's incredible about Wolf Biermann is he actually grew up in the West, and he moved to the East at the age of 17 in order to live in communist East he Germany. He moved by choice as a teenager? Yes. He wasn't dragged there by his no, parents? No, he was a convinced communist, and he thought things would be better on the other side of the and wall. And he was a folk singer like Woody Guthrie? Yeah, he was in, involved in theatre, and he was a very accomplished academic, and he ended up writing these protest songs, um, so criticising the regime. Yes. So he went there idealistically, Absolutely, and this yeah. man's name is Biermann. Uh, Wolf Biermann, yeah. Did he end up being silenced by the government? Yes, he basically got a ban on performing live in 1965. Now, my understanding is the government there would rather take a nobody from the West and pretend they are the Bob Dylan who's left capitalism, and then they make them a fake star. There was a guy named Dean Reed who was yes. famous all over the Warsaw Pact yep. as the escapee from American capitalism. And people, teenagers in Eastern Europe, genuinely thought this guy was a James Taylor or a Bob Dylan who really preferred to be in the communist world. And he sang propaganda songs that were pop hits. Yeah, and they had to basically, you know, because there weren't many of those around, you couldn't get many people to sing in the service of the regime. People preferred not to. You were uncool if you did that. Right. And of course, many young East Germans were listening, secretly listening to Western radio anyway. So that was the hottest thing when I traveled in communist East Germany was uh, cassettes from the West. Yes. What you had is you had basically people recording, you know, Western radio. I brought my cassette to Bulgaria and I gave it to my friend and he said, tomorrow there will be 50 copies of this. Yes. And all of my friends will have it. Absolutely. And they had machines in people's basements that could, in a garage kind of way, duplicate all of yep. these cassettes. Yeah. And you even had cassette DJs because you basically had to... 
No one had any vinyl. If you had vinyl, it was very expensive. There was a state record label called Amiga, but a lot of them, the stuff they were producing was not what the young people wanted. If you went to a disco, most young East Germans wanted to listen to Western music, right. but DJs were forced to play a minimum of 60% East German pop. We're remembering Maisie Hitchcock and how she loved her adopted city of Berlin and all it offered. We have links to tributes from her father, Robin Hitchcock, and from her co-hosts at the Radio Spatekoff podcast. You'll find that with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Macy, in 1990 or so, that's the end of communism, Germany is united, 70 million people, a country the size of Montana, a superpower culturally and economically in Europe. The new generation of German music, the young generation, is, is much more um, multi-ethnic now. Does that yes. show itself in its music? Yeah, it definitely does. I'd say, especially since 1990, um, you've got a lot of uh, hip-hop is massive in Germany. I think German hip-hop music scene is the second biggest in the world, believe it or not. Now, how does hip-hop in Germany compare to hip-hop in America? As we were talking in punk, there was not the anger and the edge in Germany. In the hip-hop scene, it's multi-ethnic. Uh, how would it relate to the hip-hop we know in the United States? What you have is you have a lot of second, third-generation immigrants who will be making the kind of hip-hop that has parallels. I'd say it's more like the stuff that was coming out in New York in the 1970s, the Grandmaster Flash scene, where it was like young people just going out there and kind of wrapping their heads off. And these are basically marginalised groups. They're poorer. They represent the Kurds, the Turks. So the equivalent um, of inner-city American yeah. street music. Yeah. And that stuff's often a bit darker. Amazing production on it. That's what's so incredible about it. Do you appreciate it? As, as I do, art? actually. I mean, my German friends often say, how can you listen to it? It's so awful, German rap. Why don't you listen to American rap? And I'm saying, that's what's interesting about it, because it gives me insight into the culture. Into the reality yeah. of, of the immigrant yeah. world in the, yeah. in the barrios yeah. of German big cities. Lots of slang. Um, lots of the young Arab rappers, they'll use lots of Arab words. They have their own culture. There's a very strong kind of hip-hop movement out coming out of Frankfurt, that kind of area, um, singers like uh, Haftbefehl, uh, Aslak, the record label, all that kind of thing, and it's very cutting edge. Would this be African or... Because Turkish is a, a huge um, slice of the German population these days. I mean, the Turks form a, a large part of it. They have their own kind of vernacular, but you have also a very, very large Arab, primarily, mm, I'd say. Most, a lot Arab. of Arab. But then you have the other side of it. The thing is, you have different... It depends on the music scene. You know, It depends on the, on the type of music you want to listen to, because it's like being in the US. It's like there isn't just one... It's very fragmented. But some, like Nina has transcended this. Uh, she's there for, for decades. Yeah, it, she's, but she's like a pop icon. For, for me, from this side of the Atlantic, yeah. I, when I think pop German music, I yeah. think Nina. And for me, the great thing about Nina is she defeats this idea that the German language does not sound beautiful. It's a beautiful language when, when somebody like Nina sings yeah. it. And I have to say, I think, I know, I hate to mention the R word, but I still think Rammstein manage it, although it's not beautiful like Nina. Rammstein? Yeah. And what is that exactly? Rammstein are a six, I think they're a six-man band from East Germany. They uh -huh. grew up in the 90s under the communist regime. They were part of the punk scene in the GDR. 
And they survived the and unification. They, su- they survived unification, and they were young, you know, guys in their mid twenties after unification, and they basically copied a band, I'd say, in Slovenia called Leibach, mm-hmm. who did this very kind of martial, militaristic-sounding electronic music. But Rammstein made it more metalish, so they un- introduced very metal elements to it. Because that martial, metallic yeah. sound was almost a battle cry in fo- yes. ex-Yugoslavia as they fought their battles. Absolutely, and it yeah. was. I think Rammstein picked up on that, and also yeah. there was that same thing of Rammstein having grown up under the communist Leibach. Right. And it was, I think it was a reflection of that. And also mocking it. There was a lot of kind of mockery. Uh, they're making fun of themselves. They kind of embrace very violent, uh, controversial themes. I don't know whether that's also connected with growing up in East Germany, of being able to finally kind of throw your toys out of the pram, finally, you know. You can psychoanalyze so much yeah, of this. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Germany has had such interesting history. Yeah. I find, and just anecdotally as I travel around, Germany is kind of a mecca for trance music. People go to Berlin for these festivals, yeah. and uh, it almost doesn't translate into, you know, broadcast media, but it's a happening. Can you talk a little bit about the electronica? Yeah, electronica, I mean, because the Germans pioneered, in my view, and, well, generally it's accepted, had a huge impact worldwide, it's remained the kind of land of electronica. So you go to places like Berlin, I mean, it's getting a lot of press at the moment. There's a club called Berghain, it's in the international press, it's kind of a bit over, but it's this gigantic building where people go in, they don't get there until three in the morning, they may not get let in, there's a legendary a very difficult, uh, what we call a Türsteher, a bouncer on the door called Sven, who has this kind of dark glasses, this great big beard, looks like a biker, and he just basically turns away most people. If you look like a tourist, you're not getting in. There's no mobile phones, no cell phones allowed inside, so no photographs adding to the kind of you know enigmatic character of this place. And it's just, you go in there and it's just thumping electro for hours and hours, and these parties go on for days and days and days. And it's, you go inside and it kind of looks like a church with these great big windows, it's an old industrial building. And that is real testament to how electronic music has just continued to dominate Germany. And, and where, where was that? And that's in Berlin. In Berlin. Is there yeah. a scene in Hamburg also, or is it mostly Berlin? I'd say there is a scene in Hamburg. They have a kind of different thing going on there. Because I've heard in Hamburg people go and they just lose themselves for a, an entire weekend. Oh, yeah, they absolutely do. Clubs. I mean, that's I say it's, it's Germany all over. It's particularly, have, I say, Hamburg and Berlin, those are the most liberal. Not for a while. I'm getting a bit. Old. I'm getting a bit old for that. I have to say, in I Berlin, can't keep up in, with In my Berlin, friends. they've got these concrete flak towers that yes. date back to the Hitler times, and they're just too thick to tear down, and they just are thumping with this modern yeah. techno music. It's the perfect environment. It's this kind of edgy. You know, it feels a bit post-industrial, and it continues despite the fact Berlin's now evolving into much more of a kind of contemporary dynamic city, there's still this sort of edginess to it that people are very attracted to and want to be part of. So if people want to learn more about that before their trip and then connect with German pop scene when they do go to Germany, what's your advice? Do you know, I'd say the best thing to do when you get to Germany, they have an amazing live music scene. I'd say Berlin and Hamburg are the best places, mm-hmm. but you have in Munich, you have great live venues. Mm-hmm. If you just check out, just Google like pop concerts Berlin, right. every day you'll have loads going on and there's uh-huh. always something going on in Berlin. Macy Hitchcock, that is so interesting. It's a dimension of German culture that the average traveler uh, really doesn't pay much attention to and and perhaps should. Thanks so much. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. You can find links to our guests, listen to a podcast version of the show, and search the archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. 
My public television miniseries, Rick Steves' Art of Europe, takes you on an exciting sweep through the entire awe-inspiring story of European art history in six hours. Watch the series from the Parthenon to Picasso on your local station or stream it on PBS Passport or at ricksteves.com.